All right, I'm going to level with you. I throw these behind-the-scenes bits in every now and then because a lot of people like that peep behind the curtain and because a lot of you are truck drivers who like someone to keep them company on those long hauls. And as a former delegate of the Transport Workers Union, I like to do my part to help. But also, this time, it's because I need to admit guilt. This is my mea culpa. Everyone's been asking when the next episode is coming out. Well, to answer that question, it's out right now. You're listening to it. Hey, how you doing? But here's what happened. Two things happened. The first is that this topic turned into a way deeper dive than I originally intended, and I went down some pretty intense research rabbit holes. And that isn't a bad thing. These shows are going to be a hell of a lot better because of it, but it does eat up a lot of time. Seriously, these shows take a lot of time to put together. It's a full-time job. I guess I'm fishing for a little bit of praise here for how much effort I put in. I mean, I have to do a lot of research and fact-checking. It's not just me ranting into a microphone. Joe Rogan has no idea how easy he has it not having to fact-check anything. So funny, Fauci hit you up. Well, he didn't hit me up necessarily. He disagreed with me. And I write scripts for these shows. I don't always follow the script. I don't usually follow the script. But it's good to have a script as a foundation. So scripts for these shows usually run at about 10 to 15,000 words. 10,000 words is about an hour of show. Well, the script for this Punic War series is at 65,000 words. So 65,000 words, kind of a lot. So I decided that I was going to split the show into two episodes. That's sensible, right? And then I started to record, and I got about an hour and a half in, and I thought to myself, hang on, this is fucking crazy. This show needs to be three episodes. So I chopped and changed to try and make that happen. And also because I was starting to get a little bit lightheaded, because I prefer to do these things in a single take, because that's how stand-up works, and pride cometh before the fall. And here's the most crucial mistake I made. The weather has finally changed here in Sydney, when we're heading into winter. So I got a cold. No big deal, right? Happens every year. But the content must flow. So I thought, no biggie, I'll have some cold and flu tablets, and I'll ride that Breaking Bad wave into a recording session. Nobody's going to be any the wiser. It's the perfect crime. You did the only thing that you could. I hope you understand that. And then... I finished recording, and I stuck my headphones on, and I started to edit the show, and holy shit, it was not the perfect crime. It was the most imperfect crime ever committed. The show sounded awful. What I thought was barely noticeable, slightly stuffy head as I was recording was so super loud when I listened back, it sounded like I was chewing peanut butter directly into a microphone. It was horrible. It was honestly disconcerting to listen to. The CIA could use that tape to force confessions out of terrorists. So I had to bin those hours of recording and start again. This time, hopefully, sounding less like the blob. And to spare you all of those weird smacky noises that I was making that I somehow convinced myself wouldn't be the most noticeable thing in the universe. And that's why it's been a while since I put out a show. That's the story. I'm glad I confessed. I feel lighter. My sin was pride. Feel free to tell me in the comments what yours is. I do hope it's wrath. Alright, confession done. 
Here we go. Third time's the charm, right? It's historical time. For anyone that knows me personally, this is very common knowledge, but for those of you on the more parasocial side of things, this is going to be new. My favorite movie is Pacific Rim. The world is coming to an end. So where would you rather die? Here or in a Jaeger? I have seen Pacific Rim over 500 times. I'm not exaggerating, I own six copies of it. I write every show while the Pacific Rim soundtrack is playing in the background. I mean, for one thing, it's an absolutely epic soundtrack, but for another, it runs at almost exactly an hour. So, for instance, when I'm freelancing, I can tell my billable hours by how many times the Pacific Rim soundtrack has looped. I honestly use that as my metric. I love Pacific Rim. It's my favorite movie, and I'm certainly glad that no sequel was ever made to tarnish the memory of such a great film. No, there was no sequel. So Ron Perlman's character in the only Pacific Rim movie is a gangster by the name of Hannibal Chow. So I take it you're, you're Hannibal Chow, right? You might think that's an unlikely name, especially for someone like Ron Perlman. And it is. Because it's not his actual name. Hannibal Chow is his nom de guerre. Hannibal Chow got his name in his own words. I took it from uh... My favorite historical character and my second favorite Sichuan restaurant in Brooklyn. And while I personally have never been to New York, fingers crossed one day, I can't comment on the stratification of their various Chinese takeaways, Hannibal is an absolute banger of a choice as favorite historical character. You cannot do any better. And not enough people seem to know enough about him. Which is something that I plan to fix. Because a lot of people think of Hannibal Barker as the elephant guy. And while that's technically true, and it is an incredible achievement, elephants were honestly the least interesting thing Hannibal did in his life. Hannibal Barker was a fascinating cat. He did so many amazing things in his life that somehow leading an army across an impassable mountain range with elephants is somehow the least interesting thing he ever did. Because Hannibal Barker is, still to this day, the greatest general of all time. West Point University, the United States Military Academy, teaches a module on Hannibal's tactical and strategic management. Hannibal has been dead for two and a half thousand years, and he is still the GOAT. That's how good he was. So I thought it was high time that we took a look at the amazing historical figure that was Hannibal Barker, and why the man has spawned so many awesome fictional characters also named Hannibal. So hello, Clarice. Because if you're writing a story and you need an absolute badass, you name your character Hannibal. And there is no one that was any more badass than the original Hannibal. If you'd like a quick insight into the Mandela Effect, Hannibal Lecter never actually says, Hello, Clarice. I got that clip of Anthony Hopkins saying it from a talk show. It's not actually in the film. There you go. Oh, and to temper your expectations, in case you hadn't read the title of this show, based off your feedback, dear listeners, 
this is going to be a multi-part episode. That's right, we're heading into the dreaded continuity. I know, I know, I know, I swore that I wouldn't do that again in the last show, but sometimes I have to roll with the consensus and you guys seem to want it, so I don't know, I guess I'm a generous god. Here we go, long-form multi-part series. December 7th, 1941. It's history. I originally wrote this show as just a single show about how incredible Hannibal Barker himself was, but there's just way too much good stuff out there to leave out. There's so much good stuff that Hannibal himself isn't going to come into the story until the last 10 minutes of the next episode. That's how wild this whole story is. The greatest general in the history of mankind shows up at the very end of the second episode, like a stinger in a Marvel movie. That's right, it's me, Blocko. But enough teasing, let's go straight to the penetration. Nice. First off, I think we're going to need a disclaimer up top. I like to think that you guys trust me to give you the best narrative experience that I can deliver. It's my job, it's my professional pride, it's the reason I do this. And I like to think that I'm not too bad at it. And that's why I tend to repeat names a lot in these shows. In case you've wondered why I do that, I want to make it clear who we're talking about at any given moment. It helps the flow of the story. So if I overstate names, we know who's talking. Well, in this story, it's going to get really tricky. Because this show is going to have a serious problem with names. And the problem is that there are not enough names to go around. Seriously, everyone in this story picks from the same pool of about eight names. And that's going to make it murky. I'm going to do my very best to keep everyone on track, but for those of you who have told me that names can get a bit confusing, especially in the Mongol series when everyone was named Khan, well, this show is going to be an absolute clusterfuck. For the Carthaginians, everyone is going to be either a Hannibal or a Hasdrubal or a Hanno. Hannibal's brother was named Hasdrubal, but also his brother-in-law was named Hasdrubal. And they're going to be in the story at the same point. So there's going to be some, no, not that Hasdrubal, the other Hasdrubal. That's going to happen. Hasdrubal is the Punic equivalent of Steve. There are going to be more Hasdrubals, but those are the main ones. And on the Roman side, it's even worse because there are 16 people named Scipio. There's Publius Cornelius Scipio. He's the famous one. He's Scipio Africanus. But his father is also a big part of this story. And what do you think Publius Cornelius Scipio's father's name was? That's right. He was also named Publius Cornelius Scipio. Publius Cornelius Scipio, no, not that one, the older one, he had an uncle named Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio. Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio was actually consul twice during the First Punic War. And that guy's father was also a consul during the First Punic War. It was a long war, so Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio's father was called Lucius Cornelius Scipio. But not that Lucius Cornelius Scipio, not the famous one. The famous one was that guy's father, also named Lucius Cornelius Scipio, and he was the guy who conquered the Etruscans in 298 BCE. And some of these guys are going to be showing up in the same battles. So I'll try and keep things as clear as I can for you, but it's not going to be easy. Saying Scipio or Hasdrubal in this period is a lot like saying Burgess in the year 2013. You're not exactly narrowing it down much. There's a lot of Scipios in this story. Scipios? Scipii? 
Skippities? Anyone who knows the declension of Latin cognomen, hit me up. I quite like Skippities. Kind of makes me sound like a scat man. Skippity-bitty-bitty-bitty-bop-bop. Skippity-o-dibity-bitty-bop-bop. Answers on a postcard for how much of me freestyling scat was cut from this episode. So if you get confused with the names, don't blame yourself. It is super confusing. And if I take some small liberties to maintain a frictionless narrative, then don't blame me because it's super confusing. So these shows are going to be about the Punic Wars, which was a series of three conflicts that ran on and off from 264 BCE until 146 BCE, which is 118 years from start to finish if you don't feel like doing the maths. The two belligerent parties were the Romans, who we're all familiar with, and the Carthaginians, who we're all perhaps not quite as familiar with, and we should be. The Punic Wars were not the first time that two global superpowers went to war, and they certainly were not the last time that two global superpowers went to war, but it is one of the most significant times it happened, perhaps alongside the Greco-Persian Wars in terms of just how much they meant to the course of history. The flow-on effects of the Punic Wars are incredible to think about. Uh, Spoiler alert, the Romans ended up winning this conflict, which I don't think will surprise anyone, but just take a quick moment to think about how different life would be today if the Romans didn't win the Punic Wars. We use the Roman legal system as the foundation of our own laws today. I'm speaking in a language based on Latin right now. We'd have an entirely different calendar. We wouldn't have July or August. It is crazy to think about, mind-boggling even. So don't do too much thinking about it, but keep it in the back of your mind as we go on. The Punic Wars, ultimately, are going to boil down to fundamental differences in culture. It is in many ways a cultural war, a war of ideas, and it's one in which the Romans were always going to be heavily favoured, which makes the many successes that the Carthaginians enjoyed, and particularly their two greatest generals, Hamilcar and Hannibal Barca, even more impressive, because Romans were built for war on an almost genetic level, and Carthaginians weren't. Most peoples are not built for war. The Carthaginians were very much a mercantile culture. That's how they were born, how they lived, who they were. They were all about that money. And that was the beginning and end to every problem the Carthaginians encountered. It's the lens through which they viewed the entirety of life. They weren't a people who were worried about a coin landing heads or tails. They were the one who flipped the coin. Everything had a price and Carthage had enough money to pay it. Their solution to every problem was to throw money at it until it went away. And to be fair, that has worked for 99% of human history. Don't ever, ever believe anyone who tells you that money cannot buy happiness. Not only is it scientifically proven that money can indeed buy happiness, it indicates that the person saying it has never been poor. All of my problems in life... Not a single one of them would not be immediately solved by a large injection of cash. I could mention here that I have a Patreon, but that would just be crass. So money can buy happiness. And Carthage was a very happy society. 
and that mercantile approach to life bled into everything else that they did, up to and including how they went about prosecuting a war. The Carthaginian military doctrine was the same approach as everything else they did, just throw piles of money at it. You don't want to keep your own army, you just hire a bunch of chumps to do the dying for you. And, more to the point, if you can bribe your enemy into not fighting in the first place, that's usually the better way to approach a conflict. It might cost a lot of money up front, but it is a lot cheaper in the long run. That's been another truism throughout history. Ask any nation today if it's cheaper to not go to war and see what they tell you. It's the reason why Russia held Crimea for 10 years before any of this current war shit happened. Cheaper to not go to war. If Carthage were threatened with war, they would apply the formula. And the formula was simple. You take the estimated cost of fighting the war, so hiring mercenaries, commissioning weapons, buying supplies, all of the bazillion expenses that go into a war, calculate all of that. That's A. Now, make an educated guess about how long the war is going to take, usually many years because this is in the ancient world after all. That's B. Now, have an honest look at yourselves and determine how likely it will be that you actually win this war or what it will cost if you fight the war and lose. That's C. A times B times C equals X. If X is more money than it would take to just bribe the enemy army to just fuck off and bother somebody else, then you don't fight the war. You just pay the other guy to fuck off and bother somebody else. There's no sense of Carthaginian honor or reputation, no glory on the battlefield, none of that metaphysical crap, just a simple cost-loss analysis. If it would cost $3 million to go to war with this country, but it would cost $2 million to bribe that country instead of fighting, that's what Carthage did. They were all about that maths. They didn't have a sunk cost fallacy or any stupid notions of honor. Carthaginians were autistic. They were my kind of people. Rome, on the other hand, Rome was a martial culture. They were a warrior people. There's a clue in the name there. Martial itself means relating to Mars, as in the Roman god of war. And we need to understand this at the start with no uncertainty. Your average Roman fucking loved fighting. They lived for it. It was precisely their jam. The average Roman would sacrifice an incredible amount of money if it meant that he could prove himself in battle and earn a name for himself, one that would be passed down through the generations. Because either he won the fight and he could take all of that money off the guy's corpse anyway, or he lost and he was dead and he didn't care. Rome fucking loved to fight. To them, there was no amount of money that could buy the experience of killing someone or of dying gloriously in combat. And historically, cultures that breed lunatics who are peachy keen to die in battle tend to do quite well in battle. Rome's policy was that they'd spend all of the money they had if it meant that they could fight someone that they didn't really need to. It was the exact opposite of the Carthaginian policy. And the unfortunate truth of history that none of us likes to confront is that the belligerent nation does tend to win. So in 264 BCE, these two diametrically opposed cultures are going to clash. Violently. 
for well over a century. But before we get there, we're going to need to kick off with the now trademark HGT two hours of backstory. I honestly do try and do the Kurt Vonnegut style start as close to the end as you can, and this is honestly as close as I can get. So the Punic Wars, we're going to need a bit of background on this. And when I say a bit, I mean a lot. And when I say on this, I mean on a lot of things in and around this. Well, he's had it in for me ever since I kind of ran over his dog. You did? Well, replace the word kind of with the word repeatedly and the word dog with son. But hey, the people have spoken and the long-form demo party swept the elections. I love democracy. In the mid-200s BCE, there were two major superpowers in the Mediterranean. And they were... Wait, no. We haven't gone back far enough. Rewind a bit more. In the mid-300s BCE, there was a guy by the name of Alexander of Macedon, who you might know as Alexander the Great. He conquered a significant chunk of the world through some absolutely astonishing military might. Alex was Greek, and he extended the borders of Greece all the way to Sri Lanka. Greece has obviously dropped the ball since then, but back in 330 BCE, it was absolutely, no questions asked, the superpower of the known world. Quote unquote, known world. The only other empire that could have challenged Macedonia was Persia, and Alexander kicked the ever-loving shit out of Persia. So Greece was A1, number one, best empire in the world, no arguments. Oh, and by the by, Alexander the Great was Greek, by the way. Ancient Macedon, and it is Macedon, they used a hard C, that is very different to modern North Macedonia. Northern Macedonia at the moment is Slavic in ethnicity. Alexander the Great was certainly Greek. So I'm sorry, Macedonians, but no, you can't claim that lineage. You tried and well played, but you lost. So Alexander the Great conquered a fair chunk of the world, and there was nobody who could stop him. But then, Alexander's best friend and fuckboy, Hephaestion, he gets typhoid and dies. And Alexander does not handle this well, and he spends the next couple of months drinking himself to death. He died at the age of 32. And this leaves pretty much the biggest power vacuum in the history of mankind. Suddenly, everyone wants a piece of Alexander's empire, which was the biggest empire of all time at that point. Alexander had a whole bunch of generals who were almost as good as Alexander himself. And when Alexander dies, they started to carve up his empire for themselves in what is known as the War of the Diadochi, or the War of the Successors, which is a very imaginative title. Diadochi just means successes. This starts quite a few empires. It's a very famous war, and you've probably heard of most of these empires. The Antigonid Empire? Antigonus was one of Alexander's generals. The Seleucid Empire? Seleucus was one of Alexander's generals. The Ptolemaic Dynasty of Egypt? Ptolemy was a general of Alexander the Great. His descendant was Cleopatra, if anyone still doesn't believe that she was Greek. And trust me, I won't be touching that controversy right now. So everyone is carving out chunks of Alexander's mighty empire, especially his generals, but it also opens the door for some new players to enter the game. And some older players who may have dropped off the radar and were looking to make a bit of a comeback. And Carthage is one of these players. Carthage was originally a colony of Tyre, 
and the Tyrians were Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians have been around since at least the beginnings of the Bronze Age. They are an old, old culture. Carthage was very strategically located for any shipping trade that happened in the Mediterranean. That was their greatest strength, location. So while everyone else was out there fighting to see who's going to become the next Alexander the Great, Carthage was making absolute bank by selling to all sides of all conflicts. Carthage has all of the money. When everyone else is panning for gold, the best way to get rich is to sell shovels, and Carthage was printing shovels. Ancient Carthage is modern-day Tunisia, pretty much exactly where the city of Tunis is today. And if you look at a map of the world and see where the Mediterranean opens up into the rest of the world, both sides, right at the very tip is where Carthage was. So if you're trading anywhere in antiquity, you either have to take an exceedingly long land route, or you go by ship. And if you go by ship, you have to go via Carthage. There's no avoiding it. And Carthage is going to take a little bit off the top of every single transaction that goes through their gate to the Mediterranean. So you can see just how much money they might be making at this point. They are beyond rich. And Carthage also happened to be one of the greatest naval powers anywhere in the world at the time. And that's including China. It's not often that I get to say including China. That's how good Carthage was as a thalassocracy. They challenged China. I mean, not directly, but you get the idea. Carthage was the best naval empire in the world up until the British figured out how to leave Britain, which was honestly always their ultimate goal. I still don't believe anyone willingly lives in Britain. As I said, Carthage was originally a colony of Tyre, so they're ethnically Phoenician. The Phoenicians have been around pretty much as long as there has been human civilization. And if there was one thing that the Phoenicians were good at throughout all of ancient history, it was sailing. They owned the waves for many, many thousands of years. I've covered this in a previous show, but Phoenician is just Greek for purple people. That's what it translates to, because the city of Tyre used to be the only place in the world where you could get purple dye, and that's why purple dye was so valuable. And for anyone that's wondering, the ancient city of Tyre is located pretty much where the modern city of Tyre is in Lebanon. I mean, that city is crazy old, and it always does my head in that you can actually just go there and see it. This city that is in this story, it's still there. Eventually, these Phoenicians, they need to spread their wings. So they start packing up their stuff and sailing off into the unknown, and they create colonies. And one of these colonies was the city of Carthage. And if you want to know more about the founding of Carthage, then you're obviously not subscribed to the Patreon, because those people are all over this subject, and I love them for their support. Carthage as a city was built from the ground up to be a naval empire. Carthage had this absolutely incredible harbour, which honestly should have been on the list of ancient wonders of the world, but the seven ancient wonders list was written by Greeks, which is why most of the ancient wonders are Greek. They left out a lot of things that weren't Greek. The harbour of Carthage actually ran up into the city with docks running up and down the whole way and it ended in this circular second harbour that was inside the city itself and that was defended by a massive fort with berths for over 200 ships. They put a harbour in their harbour so that they could harbour while they harboured. That's how naval Carthage was. 
To put things into perspective, in this time period, a big harbour would be considered one that would have safely docked about a dozen ships. Carthage had berths for over 200, with room to spare. They were, far and away, the most advanced naval power in the world, and it showed. Carthage absolutely owned the waves. Everyone else could go off and play silly buggers on land, fighting to build their empires and whatnot, but as soon as you put a toe in the water, Carthage owned you. So Carthage is the big power representing the African side of things. You have to remember that for the longest time, the Sahara Desert was pretty much an impenetrable force field of death that nobody could cross. So when I say Africa in this time period, know that I'm limiting the term to the north of the Sahara. Yes, that cuts out most of what we know as Africa, but I don't write the histories. I just pass them and put some memes in. On the other side of the Mediterranean, the north side, you had a new player entering the game. A people that hadn't really flexed their muscle on the world stage yet, but they were ready to make a splash with a jaw-dropping debut performance. And in the red corner, coming out of the shadows of the Hellenic world swinging, we have the relatively unheard of Kingdom of Rome! Well, not Kingdom. Definitely not Kingdom. Republic. But you get what I'm trying to say. Gosh, Romans would be mortified if they heard me calling them a kingdom. Oh, the nerve! If there's one thing about Rome, and I've got a lot of things, but if there is one thing above all others, Rome hated kings. They hated them. We'll get more into that soon, and I'll go into way more detail in the next Patreon bonus show, hint. And you probably hate that I keep plugging it, but that cosy Livy crisis is hitting everyone hard, including me. So Rome were most definitely not a kingdom, and 100% a republic, 1000% no kings allowed. But, that being said, if it quacks like a kingdom, and conducts diplomacy like a kingdom, then I'm sorry Cato, it's a kingdom. Just because you call them consuls instead of kings doesn't really make that much of a difference outside of semantics. So when we talk about Rome in this period, you got to know that we're not talking the Rome that everyone is familiar with. Rome had only relatively recently consolidated all of the disparate Italian city-states that were around them and put their big boy pants on. Rome was originally a small city-state and it's only just absorbed the other ones around them. So this wasn't the famous Rome. This is more of their Reggie Dwight phase. They're not Elton John yet. And Rome had consolidated a fair chunk of Italy in recent years. God damn you, Jacques! Why can I not say that? Italy. My very good friend, comedy partner, brother from another mother, the comedian Jacques Barrett has a routine where he says that no Australian is capable of saying Italy properly. It always comes out as Italy. And I have just proven myself Australian by saying Italy. And it burns. You happy, Jacques? Let's try that again. So Rome had consolidated a fair chunk of Italy in recent years. And the Roman Republic is a lot bigger than the area just around Rome at this point. It's a sizable state, but they hadn't gone conquering the world yet, like they would in their big boy stage. It was only about a century before this that the Romans had conquered the Samnites and brought most of the Italian peninsula under their wing, but they're not an international empire at this point. What happens in this story is actually going to be the inciting incident for everything that's going to make Rome into the famous Rome that we all know. 
This war coming up is going to be Rome's version of the Manchester Trade Hall show, in what is possibly the most niche reference I've ever made, so don't feel bad if you don't get it. You're uh, going to be seeing a lot more of that sort of thing in the film, um, although that actually did happen. Obviously it's symbolic, it works on both levels. Uh, I don't want to tell you too much, don't want to spoil the film, uh, but I'll just say Icarus, okay? If you know what I mean, great. If you don't, it doesn't matter. But you should probably read more. So, to recap, the upcoming war between Rome and Carthage is going to be one of cultural differences. Carthage were a merchant people who believed in the power of money, while Rome was populated by Romans, and Romans were fucking crazy. And to get a real handle on that situation, we're going to have to go even further back than the brewing Punic War. We need to go a full generation prior to that, to 275 BCE. Rome, having just brought the rest of Italy to heel, epic wordplay right there, Rome set her sights on an even bigger prize. Rome wanted to see how they fared against another big player on the global stage. It's all good and well being one of the big dogs in Italy, but we're going to be looking for a title fight here. So Rome finds itself at war with Greece. This was the famous Pyrrhic War, the telling of which has been a pet project of mine since the very beginning that I've never quite gotten around to, but I'll cover it briefly here because it's going to give some very crucial context to the story. So all of this time that Rome has been consolidating its Romanness, Greece has been reeling from the War of the Diadochi. Remember, Alexander the Great was Greek, so when his empire collapsed, Greece collapsed with it, and like I say, they still haven't recovered. So when I say Greece, don't imagine the Greece of Alexander or of the Persian Wars or anything like that. There isn't just one united Greece, it's a whole bunch of smaller Greek states who fucking hate each other. Which is actually how they were for most of their history. The only time that Greeks ever come together is very rarely when you either get someone as amazing as a Pericles or an Alexander or a threat like the Persians coming in and conquering everyone. Those are literally the only two times that Greeks will ever get along. The gist of the Pyrrhic War was that Rome had a treaty with Greece at the time. Like I said, Greece wasn't what she used to be, but it was still a major power. You don't forget how to do awesome world-conquering hoplite phalanxes just because you haven't used them in a while. Hoplite warfare is like riding a bike. They're still a martial power. So Greece has a treaty with this new warrior kingdom of Rome that has just popped up. And the treaty isn't really much of a treaty. It basically says, you stay out of our territory and we'll stay out of your territory and nobody shits in each other's yard. And this worked well for a couple of decades. There was no yard shitting going on. Greece couldn't be fucked fighting yet another war, and Rome weren't entirely certain that they could take on a major power yet, which was the only thing stopping them. But it was always destined to fail because Rome's official diplomatic policy towards absolutely everyone at all times was always, fuck you, we do what we feel like, go suck my dick. Seriously, the Romans were just dicks. Every single one of them was a dick. You guys know me. You know I love talking about Rome, that I think Caesar was the greatest person of all time. But even with all of that Romaboo thinking, even I'm saying that all Romans were dicks, because they were. They were the most arrogant people in history, except for maybe the Penrith Panthers. 
If you had a modern army and somehow traveled back in time to ancient Rome with this modern army and you were dropping hellfire missiles from predator drones in what would appear to be an act of God, the Romans may be willing to approach you to see if you were willing to beg them for a ceasefire. That's how arrogant they were, even in the face of annihilation. It only got exponentially worse when they had the upper hand. So one day, the Romans, out of the blue, they want to use the Greek port of Taranto. And it's very telling, and spoiler alert, but the city of Taranto is in modern-day Italy and not Greece. So Rome has a bunch of ships out at sea, and these ships need to return to a harbour for regular repairs and resupply, whatever, and they want to use the port of Taranto. No big deal, right? Wrong! Part of the treaty that Rome had with Greece included a clause that specifically prohibited the Romans from using the specific port of Taranto. Remember, I said this treaty was pretty sparse. All it said was basically, you don't mess with us, we don't mess with you, maybe we do a little bit of trade, and you never, ever put ships in Taranto. We cannot be any more clear about the Taranto issue, no ships. And the Roman fleet sailed in there anyway because, as previously stipulated, their official state policy was, sit on my dick and rotate. Romans being diplomatic was when they said, sit on my dick and rotate, instead of go fuck yourself with a knife cock. That was their entire spectrum of politeness. So the Romans dock their ships in Taranto because fuck your treaty, and things go south very quickly. The people of Taranto start to riot and they end up sinking a couple of these Roman ships. Now, you might think of this as a classic example of fuck around and find out. Rome were told not to put ships there, and now those ships were on fire or at the bottom of the ocean. Everything seems fair, right? But Rome was always looking for a reason to go to war. They fucking loved war. Violence was their default setting, and they frothed at the mouth for a chance to do some good old-fashioned enslaving. So war were declared. Now, like I said, Greece has never really been unified. Even when they banded together to fight off the existential threat of the Persians, they didn't properly unify. They merely briefly stopped trying to kill each other, and even then they settled into two major factions, the Delian League and the Peloponnesians. They never unified. So the people of Taranto don't actually have an army of their own that they can use to fight off the Romans probably would have been a good thing to think about before they started a riot, but people rioting don't tend to think things through. So now things were out of hand in Taranto, and the Romans were coming to put a stop to it. People of Taranto panic, and they sent for help from pretty much any Greek state that would listen. Not many of them did, but they did get a response from a reasonably big city-state known as Epirus. What's important is that the city of Epirus, at this time, was ruled by a guy known as Phyrrhus of Epirus. There's a clue in the name there. You may have heard of Phyrrhus. You should have heard of him, because he's kind of a big deal. And this Phyrrhus guy puts together an army, and he goes off to punish the Romans for being rude dicks, which, admittedly, they were. Oh, and I should mention that one of the main reasons that Ferris decided to go to war with Rome was not because of the whole shitting on the treaty thing, but specifically because the Oracle of Delphi told Ferris to go to war with the Romans. 
So tens of thousands of people are going to die because some half-naked bent huffed some paint fumes, started tripping balls, and then, in her stupor, she told the king of one big regional power to go to war with another regional power. Because that's what the oracle was. Remember this whenever anyone says that if women were in charge, there would be no wars, because that's bullshit. There would be heaps of wars. It's just that the women don't like to fight it themselves. They get dumb men to do it. So Ferris of Epirus gets his oracular vision and goes off to fight some Romans. What's important is that Ferris was one of the best generals of all time. Seriously, ever. He's on my top 10 list, and that includes Mongols. He's on Hannibal Barker's top 10 list. That's how good this guy is. He is seriously good at generaling. He was Alexander the Great's cousin. He had fought in the War of the Diadochi. This guy was the bee's knees in terms of the art of war. He knew what he was doing. So Ferris brings a Greek army across the Adriatic Sea and goes to war with Rome. And here's the thing. The Greeks are being led by the guy who is easily the second best general of all time up until that point. But Rome was full of Romans. And that's going to be important throughout all of this story, all three episodes. Rome just fucking loved war. And that's what proved the difference. There was a term in the ancient world known as Bellum Romanum, which is going to be important later. Bellum Romanum means war Roman style, or war the way the Romans fight. And the way the Romans themselves described Bellum Romanum was this. The victor is not victorious until the vanquished considers himself so. So in other words, there's no point just winning the fight. You have to grind your opponent into the earth. You have to destroy his will to live, to make him want to die rather than carry on. That's the only time that you can consider yourself to have won. You can't just win the fight, win the battle, maybe win the war. You have to break your enemy. I must break you. You don't win the war by killing the enemy. You only win when the enemy wishes that they were dead. That's war, the Roman style. That's Bellum Romanum. So Ferris of Epirus wins battle after battle against the Romans. He kicks their asses in every major engagement. The guy was very, very good. But Rome just will not give up. They just keep coming. Rome keeps managing to find troops. They keep finding young men willing to dive directly into the meat grinder of battle for the chance at glory. So even though Ferris keeps winning, the Romans just do not go away, bellum Romanum. And although the Romans keep getting beaten, they don't go quietly. Romans fight to the death, and they fucking love it. It takes a lot of effort to kill these Romans. So even though Ferris is winning all of these battles, he's losing troops in every engagement, and he can't keep replenishing them at the same rate that the Romans do. So Ferris ends up in the long haul, he ends up losing the war. Even though he kept winning, he lost the war. Rome did not consider themselves to be beaten, and they managed to just wear him down. And this is where we get the term Ferric victory from 
a win that costs you more than you intended, a win that is ultimately so costly you'd rather have not fought at all. As Ferris himself said, quote, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, then we will be utterly ruined. End quote. So Rome beats Greece, one of the major players on the global stage in the ancient world. And this means that the Romans have acquired for themselves the title of major player. They just went toe-to-toe with a world power and won. They are a force to be reckoned with now. And now that they know that they can tangle with the big boys, come on, who else wants to fight? Come on, just give me a reason. I double dare you. Who else wants to fight me? Rome decides that they quite like conquering new territory, and they go looking for excuses to annex shiny new provinces and provoke war with the other major powers. And it would only be a couple of decades before they finally got their excuse. And it all happened because of the island of Sicily. Sicily is an island just off the toe of the boot of Italy, and it is populated mostly by mobsters and gigolos. Sicily also happens to be about 200 kilometers away from Carthage. It is right in the backyard of both of these two world powers. Sicily at this time was an absolute powder keg. I mean, it's a powder keg now, and this is the most politically stable that it's ever been. Imagine how it was back then with all the global upheaval. Because Sicily, despite being within spitting distance of Italy, was not Roman. I mean, it's barely Italian now. Back then, they were most definitely not Roman. Sicily was actually Greek. It was part of Alexander's empire, but, I mean, everyone was part of Alexander's empire. But now that Greece had been knocked off by Rome, ownership of Sicily was a bit of a hot topic. Because not only was it right off the coast of Italy, it was also right off the coast of Carthage, and well within the Carthaginian Thalassocracy. Everyone wanted a slice of the Sicilian pie. But most importantly, everyone in Sicily was Sicilian, and they didn't think of themselves as Greek or Roman or Carthaginian. They thought of themselves as Sicilian. They were possibly the only people in the world more stubbornly egotistical than the Romans. There's a friend of mine who refers to a certain Sydney nightclub as The Drain because all of the deadbeat clubbers on a weekend will eventually wash up there at the end of the night. Sicily was kind of like that, but for the various mercenary factions that were fighting the numerous wars happening around the world at the time, they all sort of found themselves gravitating to Sicily come last call. It became known as a sort of mercenary den. And I should mention that this was a great time to be a Greek mercenary. There were a lot of conflicts in the world at this point, and a lot of people were willing to pay other people to fight in those conflicts. So for a couple of hundred years before and after this period, mercenaries could make absolute bank. Business was booming. And everyone wanted Greek mercenaries. Greek itself as a political entity may have been in a bit of a nadir, but their armies most certainly were not. Greek mercs were in hot demand everywhere. Because the various global powers saw how Alexander the Great marched undefeated across most of the planet, and they decided that the best way to deal with Greek armies was to hire other Greek armies to do it. The Persian Empire, before Alexander crushed them, the Persians decided that rather than trying to fight Greek hoplites, they'd just hire their own Greek hoplites to do the fighting for them. 
And it worked really well until one of the best commanders in military history came along with the greatest army the world had ever seen and crushed the Persian Empire. Not much you can do about that. There's a very famous memoir by one of these Greek mercenaries a few generations before the time of this story that I highly recommend reading. It's an absolute cracker. It's by a Greek mercenary general named Xenophon, and his memoir is called the Anabasis, which means the march. Xenophon and his army were contracted by one of the sides of a Persian civil war, and they were doing quite well up until their patron died and their side lost the civil war. So Xenophon and his 10,000 men have to get the fuck out of Persia while the entire nation of Persia converges on them to try and kill them. And they've got to try and fight their way back to Greece. It's an absolutely cracking read, and it has been adapted into quite a few modern stories that you probably weren't aware were actually retellings of the Anabasis. The 1979 cult classic film, The Warriors, is a pretty straight retelling of it. Warriors, come out to play. And I also highly recommend the video game version of The Warriors. It is, to date, the only video game I've ever played where I was able to beat a mime to death with a salami and then steal his hat. Great times. Battlestar Galactica is also the Anabasis, but in the future... I highly recommend the first two seasons of the remake before the showrunner became a born-again Christian and ruined it. What do you hear? Nothing but the rain. Grab your gun and bring in the cat. Boom, boom, boom. And The Last Jedi, which is objectively worse than Hitler, is also a remake of the Narbissus. That's why Ryan Johnson says that you need to kill the past. It's because he wants to be seen as an original visionary filmmaker, and if people don't know history, then they won't realize that he's just a regurgitating hack who has never had an original idea in his life. I mean, come on, people. It's just Poirot with a different accent. Why can't anyone else see that? So somebody suspects foul play and goes through this high-chair dance of hiring me, of staying anonymous. Anyway, back to the story. This is a roundabout way of saying that Greek mercenaries were very powerful and very in demand, and they could write their own paychecks in this period. And what makes them relevant to our story today is that a rather large band of these mercenaries had just taken up residence on the island of Sicily, and they didn't plan on leaving anytime soon. They were there for the long haul. And these people, they called themselves mercenaries, and that is true. They certainly would fight for money. But they also weren't above your usual rape, pillage, and plunder. The word pirate probably works a lot better here, or criminal, or thug. My Evelyn Schuckberg translation of Polybius's histories calls them desperados, which is a great word. Modern historians have moved away from cool words, and as I'm always at pains to point out, I am not a historian, but I do try to bring back words like desperados. It's also a very good film. Antonio Banderas was at his peak. Ay, 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 ay. This band of desperados was basically an independent army available to the highest bidder, and they were known as the Mamertines. Mamertine means son of Mars, as in the Roman god of war. So these are the sons of the god of war. These guys are basically Mandalorians. During the Phyric War, they fought on the side of the Greeks, because Phyrus paid them and they liked money. And during that time, they captured one of the major cities of Sicily, the city of Messina. And these Mamertines, they decide that they rather like this city, thank you very much, and they're going to keep it. 
partially because Messina was a tactically important position, but mostly because Messina was world famous for its vineyards. It produced some of the world's best wine. Much, much later, Julius Caesar would actually write about how awesome this wine was and how important it was to capture and hold the city of Messina because you absolutely needed to have this shit on tap. It was that good. Translating Latin is a bit of a fickle thing, and it allows you to take a whole bunch of liberties. And you can always go with the spirit of the translation rather than the actual literal words, which is fun. But even then, I think this is a massive stretch, but I'm still going to do it. If you were translating the Latin, an argument could be made that the wine from this region was known as the Funky Cold Messina. I honestly might retire. I think I just peaked. So the Mamertines hold the world's best liquor store, and they are not going to give it up without a fight. The Ferric War is over, but they're refusing to disband because of the powerful allure of the Funky Cold Messina, which is always the problem with the Funky Cold Messina. That's why I foul you don't play around with the Funky Cold Medina. So the Mamertines declare that the city of Messina, henceforth, is going to be the pirate capital of the Mediterranean. The Mandalorians have captured the ancient world's best brewery, and they're going to keep it. This is the way. The rest of the people of Sicily look over at Messina, and they say, we're not keen on Mandalorian pirate cities stockpiling all of our alcohol. We need some help kicking them out. And they go around asking for help. But who do they ask? And this question is going to cause the biggest global conflict since the Greco-Persian Wars. The Sicilians could ask Rome for help with their Mamertine problem. The Romans are really close by, and this is probably a Roman problem because of how close Sicily is to Rome, but nobody really wants to ask Rome because Rome is full of dickheads. You know it's true. And not wanting to deal with a bunch of dickheads, the Sicilians go to the other superpower of the region for help. They go cap in hand to Carthage and ask Carthage for assistance with their drunk Mandalorian problem. And Carthage says, yeah, sure, we'll sound our version of Giancarlo Esposito down there. He'll sort everything out. This is the way. Obviously, this all makes a lot less sense if you haven't seen The Mandalorian, but I'm very confident in my audience overlap. I get the metrics. This is the way. This is the way. Meanwhile, the Mamertines see that Carthage has just sent the Carthaginian moth Gideon over to evict them, and they start to panic. And rightfully so because one of the benefits of having the best vineyard in the world is being able to charge shitloads of money to export that wine to people who want wine. And the list of people who want wine is everyone. And you cannot move product anywhere in the world at this time without going through Carthage. So being on Carthage's shit list was a bad thing. The Mamertines, seeing their name on Carthage's shit list, they realize that while they may be a badass group of mercenaries who has taken over an entire city, there's no way that they can take on the naval superpower that is Carthage. So they go looking for someone to help them. And naturally, who do you go to to fight Carthage? Well, they go and ask Rome for help. And Rome says, 
no, you guys can go fuck yourselves. Because Roman diplomacy was always very tactful. And that would have been enough to prevent an international war and change global history forever. Except that a Roman senator by the name of Appius Claudius Cordex, he says, hang on, Messina, where have I heard Messina? Messina, isn't that the place that makes that kick-ass wine? And Rome mobilized for war. Because you must be sure that your war is pure for the funky cold Messina. You know what I'm saying? That Medina's a monster, y'all. But in all honesty, it was kicked off because of this vineyard. And now there's a war between two of the major superpowers of the ancient world, Rome and Carthage. And we call it the Punic War, because as we know, Rome eventually wins and the winners get to write history, and the Romans decided that Carthage were the bad guys, so they called it the Punic War and not the Roman War. Punic is just a derivative of the word Phoenician, it's a regional dialect, since Carthage was a Phoenician colony, so that's why it's the Punic War and not the Carthage War. And actually, it's the First Punic War, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. And this First Punic War rages on for 23 years, and hundreds of thousands of people die on both sides, and not a lot is really gained from any of it. Originally, I was only going to cover the First Punic War in broad strokes and give a bit of background where necessary, because the Punic Wars are kind of like Star Wars in that there are three of them and the one in the middle is the best. And in a nutshell, the First Punic War was just a quarter of a century of fighting over the same island, Sicily, and any gains that one side made were quickly wiped out by the other. It was a stalemate. But I decided to do an entire show about that particular war, and one guy in particular, one Hamilcar Barker. So that's the next episode. But what we need to know now is, to lead into that, is that essentially the First Punic War was a 23-year stalemate. The Romans had the better army, because they were Roman, and the Carthaginians had the better navy, because they were Carthaginian. Rome was a land power, Carthage was a naval power. So whenever there was a land battle, Rome would generally win, because they were Roman. They had a better army than Carthage. Carthage would then retreat to one of their coastal forts, and they had a lot of coastal forts, and they resupplied these by sea. So the Romans couldn't starve out these forts in a traditional siege, because they kept being resupplied by sea. And when the Romans tried to engage the Carthaginians in a sea battle, Carthage would just say, lol, and send them to the bottom of the ocean because Rome had a famously inept navy. And you rinse and repeat this for 23 years. The First Punic War was a grinding stalemate where Rome very, very, very slowly, over a quarter of a century, slowly managed to gain the ascendancy. Rome were taking 10 steps forward and 9 steps back. Carthage were taking 10 forward and 10 back. The maths eventually favoured the Romans. And they slowly started to come out on top after 23 years. Except for one particular Carthaginian general who the Romans just could not handle. A guy who flipped the script and not only wasn't losing to the Roman land force, he was winning and winning well. A guy by the name of Hamilcar Barker. And we're going to get to him in the next episode, because like I said at the start, this is a very late change to the lineup, and I'm going to cut the episode here, and what was originally intended to be a two-parter is going to be three. 
Remember a few minutes ago when I said I wasn't going to do a deep dive into the First Punic War? Well, guess who decided to do a deep dive into the First Punic War? I guess the only person I was truly fooling was myself. So tune in next time when we get some crucial context into how Carthage and Rome went about actually fighting a war, what happens when Rome are forced to create a navy but still refuse to learn how to sail and how funny that is, and we look at how much of a boss slash hair-trigger psychopath Hamilcar Barker was. And still, we get nowhere near Hannibal Barker, who was originally going to be the whole point of the story, and he has been pushed back to episode 3. So we've got all that to look forward to in the future. As always, thank you so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me. If you like what I do, and you'd like even more of what I do, then please consider supporting on Patreon in these uncertain economic times. You can support for as little as $1 a month. If you go up to $5 a month, you get a ton of bonus stuff, including an extra show every month, which I think is well worth 5 bucks. And there's also a $15 a month tier, which is only there to make the $5 tier look more attractive in a psychological marketing trick known as anchoring. If you can't afford that, or if you don't support the arts because, I don't know, a family member was murdered by a wandering mime, I understand. There are other ways to support, if you so desire. Please consider hitting the like button. That's great, that really helps. I'm not being flippant, it actually really helps if you hit the like button. If you'd like to go one better, hit the subscribe button. That helps even more than the like button. That's like 10 like buttons. And if you want to go the full Vince McMahon meme, you can even write a review on the show on the platform of your choice. That is the most powerful way to tweak the algorithm. It really punches it in the nuts. But if you do leave a review, all I ask is that you please be consistent. If you think the show is good, say it's good. If you think the show is bad, say it's bad. They're both valuable. Seriously, the algorithm loves controversy. But I've been in the entertainment business for nearly 20 years now, and I've had so many reviews in that time, and of those reviews, I have a bunch of them where the text of the review is absolutely glowing, and then I get something like three stars, and I can never figure out why, and it has given me a complex. A couple of months ago, I did the Perth Fringe Festival, and one of my reviews for my show was about how good this show was, how much the audience loved it, how funny it was, but there was, get this, too much applause, and it upset the rhythm of the show. Three and a half stars. So there you go, my review was show too good, three and a half stars. I'm not making that up, you can honestly find that online. The reviewer complained that the audience liked the show too much, so only three and a half stars. As I said, I think I'm developing a complex. Alright, I'm rambling. I will see you in a couple of weeks with the next chapter of this adventure. It's going to be absolutely wild because it's all about Hamilcar Barker, and the only person in history more awesome than Hamilcar Barker is his son Hannibal Barker. So in the show after that, we will eventually get around to Hannibal Barker, and it's going to be an awesome series. I cannot wait to bring it all to you. It's been an absolute blast, but until then, if you can't be good, then at least be good at it.